Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, the alternative wealth building podcast for high income earners. My name's Christian Allen. With me, as always, Rodney, the pods of Brisky. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It's not quite New Year's as of this recording, but it will be when people hear it. So Happy New Year to everybody listening. And we are in a part two of our series where we've brought with us Blake never takes a break broken. Blake, what's going on, man? I'm back. Made it to part You're two. Back. You made it to part two. You didn't get kicked off. So that must mean that you've done something right, my friend. Okay. Okay. So let me set the table here. We had a long discussion. We've had a long discussion so far on life insurance in, genu- in general. We've talked about the whole term versus permanent debate. And then we started to like really unravel the debate between index universal life and whole life. Um, as I mentioned, this was inspired by all those videos out there. There's just like a lot of buzz about it. So I, I, I had to get on in on the action. Um, we took quite a, we took, Rod, you took most of the bullets. So what we did on the first episode uh, or the, the first part, Rod was taking the, I'm the IUL guy. Blake and I were the whole life guys. We're going to turn the tables, Blake, how the, ta- how the turns table. <laughs> oh, how the turns table. Um, and now Blake, but he still gets to be the whole life guy. This time he's got to take the bullets. And we're going to talk about why, or I shouldn't say that. We're going to talk about what the, the problems, the challenges, the how the IUL folks attack the whole lifers. Is that, is that a fair way to say it? Okay, before we do that, though, I want to finish up on IUL because there's a few things we didn't get to. Um, the first thing... Rod is this IUL challenge. Like I said, it was inspired when I was watching Chris Kirkpatrick and uh, help me. What's his name? Gunderson. Gary Gunderson. Gunderson. Chatting it up. Um, they're huge whole life guys. They're totally anti IUL, really in every way, shape, and form, which is kind of fun. So let's talk about the IUL challenge first, Rod. So here's the IUL challenge is funny. It's, it's really, Chris is saying, Hey, if you, I'll give anyone a certain amount of money. If you can show me an illustration that matches the original illustration or is better than, so let's just say, theoretically, I purchased an IUL 15 years ago. He's saying if 15 years later, you can show me something that's done as well or better than the illustration, I'll then give you money. Okay. So, it's an interesting, it, it, first off, it is going to be a difficult one to, to tackle, but I think there's context that we have to understand around why that is. So Rod, I'm going to turn it over to you to hit on Chris's IUL challenge. And maybe what I would say are some of the inherent problems with just saying like, hey, let's just go ahead and see what, what piece. Now, by the way, I do think there are plenty of contracts out there that are performing as well or better. We have a whole book of business that is performing at least very similar to the original illustrations. Yeah. So, but, but again, the challenge becomes how would I show an illustration in, in an interest rate timeframe that was so much greater than what it is today. And we're in a declining interest rate. Okay. I'm going to stop Rod. Talk about about the IUL challenge and some of what you saw in that. Yeah. You're hitting on uh, a lot of the points. So, Uh, because like to your point, could we say, well, here's a contract we set up, you know, three, four, five years ago and it's performing as well or better. Yes. That'd be easy to do because in a, in a short timeframe like that, like it could, it could have performed well two two years out of the three or four and you could be way ahead. Right. Or similarly, it could have not performed in two years of the three and been behind, but both of those things are totally on the table based on what we've seen. Absolutely. So in short timeframes, uh, and, and we, we help people understand this when we're setting them up, an illustration for IUL is not a prediction of what's going to happen. It's basically taking the, the bounds of what we're offering in terms of a floor at zero, a cap at, again, if it's the S&P 500 recently, the caps were at eight and a half, nine percent 
and saying, okay, what's, what's reasonable to expect as an average, that's what we're showing in the illustration. And when you look out 15, 20 years, if the cap stayed the same, that's a reasonable expectation for what, what, you, would, what you would see in your cash value that, much, that far out. But on a one, two, five-year timeframe, the averages, they're, they're not going to play out as necessarily, right? Could, possible. They could. They're not going to play out as an average in that same way. So in a short time frame that he would reject those and he would say, okay, that's, that's not, that yeah, there's help. not enough time there to, the, the I agree. Um, and so then he's, if, if the question is, okay, well, but you have to show me something that is 10, 15 years at least old and how it's performed. Well, 15 years ago, interest rates were a lot higher. And what that means is that the caps were higher. In other words, when we talk about this floor of zero cap of, 8, 10, 14, the cap is determined by the budget that the insurance company has when they go out and buy the options. Or in other words, instead of just giving you an interest credit, that's basically equivalent to the, the return the insurance company is getting in their general uh, investments, they're taking that same money and going out and buying options with it. And when interest rates are higher and they're getting higher returns, no surprise, they can go out and buy higher caps. So if we were looking at an illustration that was run 12 years ago and the cap was 13% on the S&P 500, then the average that they were showing was going to reflect that right around probably 8% is what they were doing. Whereas more recently, a year ago, two years ago, uh, when interest rates had been low for so long and the cap dropped to 8 8.5%, then they were showing something like a 5% average return on, on the illustration. Now, since then, uh, interest rates have, have gone up, obviously. Therefore, caps have gone up. Therefore, the averages have gone up. So we're actually showing higher illustrations today than we were able to show a year ago. Does that mean that the, the, the products have changed or that they're that much better today than they were? Well, no, that's just it's a reflection of the specific formula that is given to the insurance companies. This is how you have to run the illustrations and, and those different factors play into it. Okay, that's that's a good lead in. I have a question, Rod, because one of the things that the IUL hater crowd would say is that there it's really just a war of illustrations. Yeah. Right? So the best illustration wins. Can you speak to whether that's true and your true or false in your experience and maybe why or why not? Yeah, I would say it was true. I, well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that the war is over, right? But right. I would say, it's just not this. It's not. It's not the same playing field that it was. It's not the wild west that it was fifteen years ago yeah. or ten years ago, even. Yeah, because ten years ago, the insurance companies could decide how they wanted to run their illustrations, mm-hmm. and and if if they were responsible and they were trying to do things, then whatever. But but there are companies that were not right. They were not responsible. They were showing things that that maybe were unreal. Not maybe that were unrealistic based on the index and the caps and those things like that. So the the industry kind of watchdog group that is basically the organization where all the insurance companies are involved got together and said, okay, we need to create some sort of standard for how illustrations should be run. And so this this kind of, again, self-regulating piece came in and said, you, you have to use this formula when you're running your illustrations. So all the companies were using that. Well, then there were companies that got creative and said, well, what if we do, we have these multiples that get in here and, and different bonuses that can happen. And uh, there's one company in particular that had a, if you're, if you're, uh, if the market is up multiple years in a row and you get an extra bonus each year that it's subsequently up for, I think up to like three years, well, it turns out the illustrations showing up year every year. And so, again, there were totally unreasonable things shown out there. And so then they came back and, and re-regulated it, kind of revised the regulation to get to a place where a, pol- a product can still offer those types of bonuses and, and uh, multiples and things. You just can't illustrate them. Yeah, so, Chris would say, uh, he would say they've they've had three regulation changes three t- or they've had three of them in the last like 15 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say that to that, like 
and this is hard because I'm as much a whole lifer as an IULer, right? But I would say to that that it's only been around for 20 or 30 years, maybe a little bit longer, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like a time frame where it's being learned and then hopefully mastered and becomes more effective over time. But I think what we're seeing is just a natural transition of something that was newer into the marketplace, learning how to become what, I mean, I think about like long-term care. You want to talk about a disaster that came to the market, Mm long-term care insurance, right? Like that was one of those things where, where it seems like this really great idea. And it is, if you can, if you can afford it, it could be really valuable. Yeah. But like the pricing on that was, has been really hard for most Mm. companies have just gotten out of the, the game completely because they weren't Mm -hmm. able to price it appropriately. My, my point is just to say, IUL has come a long way to the point where most illustrations are running pretty similar in terms of what return they're showing, right? So then it becomes a question maybe of cost structure or other elements that could make the policy run more efficiently and more effectively than another one. Um, Okay, but but I do think, I think it's something to be aware of. Like if someone's coming coming, coming to you with, something that seems unrealistic, the chances are, if it looks that way, it probably is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's fair. Okay. So there are some, there's, there's positive, there's negative with IUL. We use it specifically in situations where we're trying to create tax-free income, potentially for like estate maximization, those types of things. Primarily, we use it in a premium finance design. There's obviously good, there's bad with all of the products and vehicles we have in our, in our repertoire. One of the things we haven't touched on with IUL is the way that we make sure our policies are actually going to run and work and be good, right? So they talk about the war of illustrations, but I would suggest that we need to take that a step further and make it a war of stress testing the illustrations, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that we do, and we hope that everybody does, is that they stress test the policies to see how they run in various situations. Um, Blake, I promise we're going to get to our conversation on whole life in a second, but Rod, run us through stress testing, why it's important, and then we're going to um, flip the script and start attacking whole life. Yeah, I would say stress testing is important in any context, uh, whether you're using premium financing or not, but then especially in premium financing. And the reason for that is stress testing is important. Okay, wait, what is stress testing? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're saying uh, over you know, certain periods of time, how did it, how would it have performed based on the, the parameters, the structure that we've set up for it? And, and uh, not just cherry picking and saying, oh, well, if it was between 1992 and 1999, then, you know, it's like picking <laughs> yeah, the, we're the best rolling. Yeah. Obviously it would do great in that time. We don't need to run that stress test because there's no stress in that situation. But what if it is from 2000 to 2009, for example, right? where the market was struggling for a long period of time or the great depression is actually was, would have been an even worse uh, market performance timeframe. So we use that as, as kind of our, one of our big stress tests. So, because as it relates to the costs that exist in the IUL and their relationship to the growth that we're assuming is, is created, which again, in an illustration just assumes every year we're getting that five, five and a half percent or whatever. So, uh, but what what about years where that doesn't happen? The it's it's sold as something where your value never goes down. I hear people say that, and it's poor wording because you don't participate in the losses of the market. You have a zero percent floor, but that doesn't mean your value didn't go down. You still had costs in that year, and so your cash value actually does go down in that year. But not because the, you participated in losses of the market, but just because of the costs that exist on the policy and you didn't earn any interest to offset that in that year. So we have to know what it looks like in those types of situations. So that's the the biggest reason for stress testing. And then when you take it to the premium financing level, which is where we're using loans from a bank for the majority of the money going into the policy to build this, this large future income and or future death benefit, and when we do that, because now we're also have we have a loan out there, we need to create growth in our policies to offset interest that we're accruing on the loan. So now this is additional level of stress testing because now it doesn't have to just perform against the costs that are internally built into the policy itself. Now it has to perform against 
increasing interest on the loan that happens every year, regardless of how, whether the market went up or not. So an additional layer of, of kind of drag in that situation. So now the stress testing of market performance is important and stress testing against interest rates in a high interest rate environment. How does it perform? That's, you have to know that you have to know that because these are long-term products plans in do I know what's going to happen over the next five years? No. Do I know what's going to happen over the next 50 years? For uh, Even worse, no, right? And so, um, but I do know that there will be times when the market struggles. I know there will be times when interest rates are going up. And so how does the, the specific plan that you're plugging into perform in those kinds of stressful environments? Okay, so I'm just going to wrap up how we view, and maybe I'm reiterating this, but obviously as we get into this like internal debate amongst ourselves, our position is that IUL, while not perfect, just like whole life isn't perfect, has some value in the right situation, given the right structure and make sure making sure that the policy is designed appropriately, which is always for us, minimum cost, maximum cash. Um, and if we do those things, and again, if it's put inside of the right context, then it can absolutely and is a, an extremely powerful vehicle. So people who are saying not to do it, I just feel like there's a there's this, I feel like it's more of like a marketing methodology. There's a part of me that's like, do they really believe at that level? Like, can you really know the information and then like look look people in the eye and say, oh yeah, this never works. Or this is only the, for me, that just has never worked. So we're, we're going to take a less extreme viewpoint and we're going to use each for the thing that they're good at. Okay. Um, is there anything else that I didn't cover on the IUL side that you guys think we ought to have? Man, right? I think like, the darts are going to be coming. Like, I'm excited about this, man. We're going to be testing you. Okay. So now, um, Rod and I are just going to, we're going to bring up the questions and concerns that people might have with whole life. And I'll just list a few of them out and then we'll We'll just hit them like one by one. So I have a I have a little list. Rod has some as well, but here's some that came to my mind. One of the, the first one that would say it's overly rigid, uh, too expensive, possibility of demutualization. Okay, nobody nobody talks about that, but it's real. Uh, I have to keep paying it forever, or at least it requires an ongoing premium. Right? Uh, it's not good as an investment. There's not enough transparency with it. I don't know the cost of insurance the same way that I know them with IUL. Like, okay, so uh, Rod, do you have other stuff on your list? That that included mine. I, I was just adding to yours. So okay. Oh yeah. Oh sorry. That's that makes more yeah. sense. I just thought I was that brilliant and I created the full <laughs> list. But turns out Rod helped me. <laughs> okay, uh, Blake. Let's talk about it though. First, give us just an overview of what whole life is in comparison, because we spend all this time talking about IUL. Start with whole life and the basic design of what it is, and then we'll start kind of poking holes. Yeah, so whole life is going to have a lot of the same characteristics that we've been talking about with the IUL in the sense that it has a permanent death benefit. So as soon as you put in force, you'll have this death benefit. It will pay out, assuming that the policy is in force when you pass away. And it also is going to build cash value along the way. Um, so a lot of the, the structure is going to be fairly, fairly similar. One of the big differences is in the way that the cash value grows. So Rod, I won't reiterate, you know, all he was talking about with, you know, caps and floors and indexes and options and all that with the IUL. With I whole feel like life, that was a slight when he was just going through those. I feel like it was a little bit of a slight, like, uh, all of I these, this jargon has that. He's still got a little, a little bit. I'm just kidding, Blake. Okay, no, well, you're I'm right. in a debate. That's... I'm in a debate here. I got it. I got to hit him. At, at you got to hit him. I agree. Yeah. I'm with you. So the the cash value grows differently in a whole life versus IUL. In whole life specifically, it's much more predictable with with what we're going to expect over the long term, and really even in the short term as well. So the the cash value grows in two ways. First, you have a guaranteed interest that's paid out. Um, typically that's going to be somewhere in, in, in today's market, two to three and three quarters percent. A lot of the companies are using like 3% for the guaranteed interest. And then on top of that, with the type of companies that, that we do business with, they're mutual insurance companies. 
Uh, one of the things you threw out there was demutualization, but essentially you as a policy owner become a part owner essentially in the company and, and you participate in those profits. So they pay you out um, annual dividends just for, for having the policy. So the interest is guaranteed, the dividends are not, but the way that the, or I should say the companies that we use have been paying dividends for, you know, 100 to 170 years in a row. Yeah, and it's, uh, so, okay, so there's a huge amount of stability. We know what we're getting with whole life, right? Now I say that, and there's actually kind of a lack of transparency, but we do know from a results standpoint, that we can rely on something. We can rely on our policy doing something relatively close to what it now. Now, I'll say this, the same challenge, I almost want to do the whole life challenge because how many whole life illustrations that were written 15 years ago are going to look like a whole life illustration of today? Talk about why or why not that, why or that, well, let me try that again. Talk about why that may or may not be the truth. Yeah, that's a great point. And I was really just about to bring that up with the IUL challenge that we were talking about. As interest rates have declined, the caps have declined over the last 10, 15 years on the IUL side. On the whole life side, your dividend is not necessarily tied to interest rates, but the current market interest rates very much have an effect on the dividends that you receive in the sense that the insurance companies that are out there investing their assets, they're investing in things that are interest rate sensitive, bonds and things like this. So if we looked at a whole life challenge over the last uh, you know, 15 years as well, you said, okay, find me someone who purchased a whole life policy between 2005, 2010, and has it outperformed what we originally illustrated in now that we're sitting here in 2024, the answer would be, you know, very little or or maybe even no policies have performed to that same manner. Now, are they going to be similar? You know, depending they, on what you they, consider they similar, be. They'll, they'll be close. They'll be close. Now, I say that to say that as we're sitting here in, in 2024, maybe I'll, I'll even take a step back. When we're having conversations with people, I'll often bring up uh, the dividend rate history of of what what it looked like from these companies, what dividends they were paying, you know, as 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 far back as the late '80s when interest rates were very high, and just basically say, you know, right now with the dividend rates that were environment that we're in right now, we're basically projecting all time low dividends or pretty close to that, depending on the company. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at illustrations, we're we're fast forwarding you know, another 90 years and saying, if interest rate or if the dividend rates stay the exact same in these all-time low, mar low markets now, and we project that forward another however many years till, till the policy runs out, here's what that would look like. So I think in if we fast forwarded 15 years from now and we ran that same challenge on the whole life side and said, hey, what is it, you know, does anyone have policies that outperformed? My guess would be as interest rates are are starting to climb, I'm guessing they're going to remain, you know, higher than they were back in, uh, you know, two years ago. I think the illustrations that we're using right now, yes, they're very predictable, but I also think they're on the on the conservative end on the whole life side. Yeah. So in a rising interest rate environment, whole life, uh, really, really whole life is going to lag behind interest rates across the board, right? So as we have interest rate, and by the way, this is a little tease, this becomes a real challenge when you're talking about direct versus non-direct recognition because, well, we'll get into that. Um, okay, I think that's a really good point. And, and I'm, having, I'm, I'm having this like conf internal conflict because I love whole life and I love IUL for their different things. So I'm trying to both attack, I'm trying to play both sides of this. Um, okay, so that's a pretty good overview. Rod, is there anything that you would add to Blake's overview of whole life insurance before we start kind of talking about what some of the issues are? No, I, I think we'll, uh, I think we'll uncover some of these things as we go. Okay. Okay. And you, I might change, I might have you change teams and maybe I'll attack both of you a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, so here we go. Let's talk about the rigidity of whole life insurance, because again, the IULers would say, okay, you know, and, and really, you know, when I look out at all the YouTube videos there, like I said, there's like this incredible vitriol, but there's also a lot of over -promises. In fact, I see people saying things like, like using infinite banking with whole life insurance is like 
of the dinosaurs, the worst thing you can do. It's got to be IUL. If you're not, you're missing the boat, right? Um, okay. So one of the things that they would say is because it's super rigid. You owe premiums forever. Talk about the rigidity and, you know, maybe give us a counterpoint to that issue. So in terms of typical whole life, like, again, I, I mentioned this in, in our previous recording, but if you just go to your local life insurance salesman and said, hey, I want whole life, a million dollars of whole life, I'm 45 years old, how much is that going to cost? They may come up with a number, I don't know, $25,000 a year or something like that. And you, that is very rigid. On your policy anniversary date or right around it, you need to be sending the life insurance company 25,000 bucks a year, whatever the number is. So in some cases that that can be accurate. Now, the way that we're designing policies, we're very much overfunding. As Christian, you mentioned, we want maximum cash value and minimum death benefit or minimum cost. So when you overfund or put a lot more money into the premium than you need for the cost of insurance, you're building up cash value right away. And that cash value is going to give you a lot of flexibility. So more specifically, we're not starting with how much death benefit you want. We're saying how much money are you wanting to put into the strategy that we can then turn around loan against to go invest in other assets? So let's say you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm, um, I want to put in $100,000 a year. I want to be able to, to fund this policy up to $100,000 a year. Well, that's going to create in our strategies what we call a funding range. So depending on your age, it's going to vary, but you know, might be somewhere between 100K to 25K a year would be the range in terms of the amount of funds that, that you could fund. So each year you're deciding in between that funding amount, how much you want to put in. So there is some flexibility there. Additionally, once we get a couple years in, you've built up significant cash value. If you want to stop funding or you can't fund for a certain year, that's not going to be a problem because we can use the cash value to fund a portion of the premium. So we'll look at designs. Uh, typically, when we're working with someone, we'll start with, hey, what does it look like if you fully fund this policy for seven years? And then you never fund the policy again. So we're starting with a seven-year window. But we can even go back to say, hey, you could fund this for you know four or five years or three years or put in the 100K a year for two years and then back it down to 25K a year. So we'll run scenarios like that and just basically demonstrating the flexibility. And I, you know, when I'm having conversations with people, oftentimes they're like, man, I had no idea that you could do that or that there's that much flexibility that can be brought into it. And really that's, that's just because of the way that, that the policies are designed. Yeah. Can I just say this? I think that that one is ridiculous because yeah. In any situation that, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not ridiculous because at its bones, to your point, Blake, if it's the very baseline basic policy, then it's absolute. But if you're overfunding, which means that we're putting three or four years worth of premium in at once, suddenly I create this massive buffer that gives me all this flexibility. Plus, I'm getting interest earned on top of that, which is then going to um, create the flexibility that allows me to either stop funding it altogether, take a break, focus on my investing, all of those things become um, really open and flexible. And so the irony is just thick, I guess, in this situation, because whole life, while uh, at its initial outset, sounds like it could be rigid, it's actually quite flexible to your point when it's been um, built. I, 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 we say properly, um, I don't know if that's the right wording, but the way that we feel like is optimal. Okay. Rod, do you have anything to add on the rigidity of whole life? Uh, just the difference between, again, if we're comparing the two in IUL or in a, a universal life environment, you can actually make some adjustments on the, on the death benefit. You have more flexibility with that. In other words, if I have a million and I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm underfunding it, I want to, uh, make an adjustment so I can move the death benefit to 800,000 or something to make the cash value do better at the, the, the lesser funding that I'm doing. Now that re that keeps me from being able to then go back to the funding level I was at. Right. But I have that ability with, whereas with whole life, there's, there's some of that because we use a term writer, we can adjust the term or take it off or, so there are some right. things with, but it is, again, it's so to less, your point, it is, there are elements that are more rigid. Like that's just yep. truth, right? And yep. to be fair, like that's part of the reason that uh, that 
universal life was designed, right? They were trying to do two things. One, they were trying to create a bridge between whole life and term insurance. And number two, they were trying to make it more flexible so that people had, again, more flexibility in the terms of how they paid it. Now, again, one of the challenges is for for so many people when they're pitched life insurance, it has nothing to do with growing cash value, or at least Mm -hmm. that's secondary. Mm -hmm. And so we have to differentiate between a death benefit play and a cash value play. Right. So if you're if your play is death benefit focused exclusively, whole life actually is rigid. If it is cash value focused and built optimally, it actually ends up being quite flexible. Okay. Um oftentimes I hear whole life is too expensive, right? Like it just costs more than well, anyway, let, let's you guys talk speak to it. Who wants to go first? Yeah, I can go there. So in some ways it is expensive in, in some ways, in other ways, I would say it's not quite as expensive as it's cracked up to be. Here's where I think some of the expenses come is really in the first couple of years of this strategy, when you're overfunding, you know, these high cash value whole life policies in the first couple of years, you're not going to see the full cash value available to you to go out, loan against that and invest right away. So for example, let's go back to my, you want to put in $100,000 a year. In the first year, you might have you know, dollars $77,000 of cash available to then go invest. So there's opportunity cost because now you don't have access to that 25K that year to go out and invest. So in the early years, if you're saying, I just want to put all my money into a policy and then turn around and go use it, there's going to be some expense in those first two, three years of the policy. Now, those expenses, though, are very much overloaded into those first couple of years. So as we continue on in this strategy of building up cash value in these policies, one, the, the costs are going to go down. But two, you're also going to have the growth in the cash value, the interest that's being paid, the dividends that are being credited. And then when you combine that with the lower costs, yes, the costs continue, but also let's say you're putting in $100,000 in year seven and it grows by $140,000 that year. So were there costs? Yes. But really we, we ate up a lot of those costs in the, in the early years. Now, the other thing I might add to that is that just whole life in general is going to have a higher cost than a term life, just naturally, right? You're you're buying insurance that's okay, eventually going to. Let's pay. clarify this though, because I think this is important. It doesn't necessarily have a higher cost; it has a higher premium, right? Exactly. And there's a difference between those two because there's a paradigm shift that has to exist. Like there's a value proposition, and the question then becomes: Is all are all expenses bad expenses? Right. Or is that expense actually a value proposition? There's some things that I can put money into that are an expense that can be hugely valuable. An example might be let's say that I pay to create a trust to put my assets in and I end up in a lawsuit and it's completely saved. Like, was that an expense or was it a value? Right. And so the same thing has to kind of apply inside of this premium world. We have to look at it and, and differentiate premium versus you know, really, I guess, premium versus cost or value versus cost. If I can jump in real quick, that's probably one of the the biggest things that we we try to help people see because, again, in that example you gave earlier, Blake, the 25 to as a minimum up to 100,000 a year as a max, people often look at that 25,000 like, oh, that's my cost. And in year one, it might be, right? Mm -hmm. But, But beyond that, you're... That even that minimum, even if you only put in the minimum, you're building cash value as a result of that. In other words, whole life is created to build cash value even at that minimum funded level. So because we are so used to thinking of premium, that, that word premium, when mm-hmm. we pay my health health insurance, when I pay my auto insurance, that's a cost. It goes away. Whether I use my the the benefits of the insurance or not, I'm never gonna get that money back life insurance, permanent life insurance is different. It's just, there's nothing else out there that's built like it because I pay my premium. It's still the same word, but it's 
building cash value. It's building value inside of the account. So yes, some of it is cost. Again, I'm not saying that there's no cost to it, but premium doesn't equal cost to, to Christian's point. Okay. And, and the other thing I should point out, and this is important for people to understand, is all life insurance basically costs the same right? It's all term to age 100 in some way, shape, or form. It's built out, it's structured differently, but at the end of the day, those those costs end up being relatively similar, it, again, as a matter of how they're spread out. In a whole life policy, I have it spread out. One, obviously, in a term policy, I know exactly what that cost is, but but if I were to own that policy ongoing, my cost would then skyrocket, right? Mm-hmm. Or I should say my premium would skyrocket, um, which in in term insurance, my, I, I won't even say all term insurance is a cost. My dad died at 49 and his term insurance absolutely paid off. I would, I would call that a huge value. So anyway, I, I think you're right. It's that paradigm shift that kind of has to happen. Um, okay. Let's get to, let's get to my next one. Uh, Cause this one's, this one should be uh, right on Blake's mind because he's recently experienced this. So, and I've been through this a couple of times, demutualization. So one of the things, and I'll kick us off and then you can take over, Blake, but one of the things that we often tout as a value proposition with whole life companies is that they're mutual companies. To your point, Blake, I own a portion, just like I would in a credit union, and because I own a portion of it, I then get value based on the profitability of the company. That's where the dividends come from in a whole life policy. Um, however, however, one of the things that we've seen, and now that I think about it, I've seen it three times in my 18-ish years. Um, and I'm trying to think. I could probably name them, but I won't name them. Anyway, you've seen this recently, Blake. What do you have to say about the IUL crowd that might say, okay, I know that you talk about, I don't want it to be a stock company, but what happens when these, because to be honest, there's not that many mutual companies left, what, maybe mm-hmm. 10 or 15? Yeah. Anyway, hit on demutualization as an issue. Yeah. Because I think so, it I can mean, cause challenges. It can. And you know, as you mentioned, I've, I've seen that with some of the policies that I own personally, as well as, you know, helped other people set up. So, one of the challenges is that, especially in the lower interest rate environment, like this one company in particular, they were having a hard time creating the, uh, you know, returns that they needed to pay out the dividends and, and things like that, just based upon where interest rates were. So one of the things that they went to do was go to venture capital to get a big influx of cash. Um, but to do it's that, always they bad. Had, always yeah. bad. They I remember when. De- Blake, I have to tell you this. Sorry to cut you off. I remember when the first company that I worked with got a big influx of cash and like 12 months later, they were out of business. Scary, right? Now, I, I will scary. say this. I say I say out of business. They weren't out of business. They're, they still maintained their policies and like yeah. they, they, so it's not like they left. They just left the business of doing new business and kept to the word. That, what am I trying to say? They kept their word. They actually followed through on the promises that they were delivered there. But again, seeing that, like when money gets in flux, that's not coming, like not internal. That's always a little bit scary. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So what happened with this company in particular is the individuals who owned whole life policies were the part owners of the company, right? So when they demutualized and brought in all this new money, myself and clients that I had were entitled to a portion of that of that revenue that came to the company. So everyone, depending on when you bought the policy and in many different factors, everyone received a check. Some, some of the checks that, that people received, they were elated. They're like, I can't believe how much cash I just got, you know, (laughs) like very significant sums of money just got sent to them tax free. And then I'll, I'll say this, the stability of the company was and it actually went up in the ratings because of the amount of cash. So there was no concern over our death benefits going to be paid. Is the cash value still going to be there? Frankly, I would say it would even went the other way with now they have tons of reserves to pay out. So for a lot of people who were more death benefit focused, they love this demutualization. They got a big check and then they knew that their company had a lot of cash. On the downside to it though, the policies that we set up that were again more cash value focused 
what this company did and, and other companies have done in the past. They say, okay, we're going to honor the guarantees, but all that those dividends, those are going to be drastically cut moving forward. So as we ran in-force um, projections, essentially, it's like, okay, you were at X amount of cash value, then you got this big dump in to your policy because of the demutualization. But then going forward, all those dividends and kind of that gravy and growth that we were expecting and hoping for, that's not really going to be there. So it did create a situation where for some people, it, it wasn't a great situation in the sense that they had this cash value and they needed to make a decision. Okay, am I going to cash out this policy? Am I going to stay with this current company, but at the reduced dividend rate? Or option three would be to move my cash into a, a policy with another company um, using what's called a 1035 exchange, very similar to a 1031 in real estate, where you can take your cash value, move it into another company. It's all tax free. And then now I can set up a new policy with that company moving forward. So we had people on in really all three of those camps. We want to stay the stay the course. We want to just uh, cash out the policy. And we had a lot of people who said, hey, let's continue on with the strategy, use our bumping cash value, move it over, and basically redesign the policy with what's going to fit us at at the you know best now. So while a risk, certainly, and something that I would hope that you know, demutualization, I would say overall is not a good thing, even though some people are definitely winners in that. Um, it's not something that we need to worry about losing our cash value or having the company go insolvent, things like that. Your your cash is is that is is safe. The question is what's going to be best moving forward. Okay. So it's really a matter. So basically what I hear you saying is that even through a demutualization situation, there's still quite a bit of stability in your experience. Like you're, you're going, you've recently gone through this experience with the company you use. And, um, and so I do think that's important, right? Like what that means. And what I heard you saying is that when I'm using, if I'm, if I'm a, a cash grower, if I'm investing through my policy, then chances are my best bet is to 1035 exchange money into a new policy, giving me the opportunity to continue to grow my cash value the way I wanted to, and then I'm investing through it. If, yeah, however, most likely the purpose, that's right. Yeah, and 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 yet, if you were if you were a person who was focused on that original policy as primarily a death benefit play, it may not change your feelings about it at all. Right? There may not be any any issue at all. So, um, I actually do think demutualization is probably um, an overhyped concern. I, I heard it a couple times in some videos. And while it exists uh, in every situation, I've seen it again, two or three times. Um, it's usually still been able to go to create a positive outcome. So it's not like, it's not like the person really lost anything by yeah. having that, that take place. They just had a situation where maybe it's not as advantageous from a cash perspective moving forward. And then they've got to, to your point, make one of those kind of three decisions that you laid out. Okay. Woo. Demutualization. That's a fun one. Okay. One of the other concerns that I always hear, and you've actually already addressed this, so just maybe reiterate, but I have to pay premiums forever, right? It's so rigid. I'm back to the first one, but I have to pay premiums forever. Uh, maybe just remind us why that's actually not the case. Yeah, you certainly don't have to pay premiums forever. And in, in fact, most nearly every policy that we set up, the plan would not be to pay premiums forever. So some companies have structures where they they have a 10 pay product, a 20 pay, uh, pay to 65, pay to 100, where basically the plan would be to pay for how you know whatever the time frame is. With other companies, they may have more flexible products in terms of you know, you don't have to dictate when this policy is quote unquote paid up, right? It could be paid up after seven years or after 45 years, whatever you decide. So from a, you know, first off, you don't have to pay premiums forever. Second off, when we overfund, again, we're putting in, you know, 4X the amount of premium typically in our designs than we need for the insurance portion right away. We've built up a lot of that buffer that you could even stop funding in some cases as, as your early as years three, four, or five, 
and you say, hey, if we never put any more money into this into this policy after year four, here's what the cash value would do. Again, we'll show people those examples regularly as they're setting it up. Not that the plan's only to pay for four years, but if you run into a situation, life changes, you don't fund it. Hey, here's what's going to go happen with your cash value. Here's gonna what's happened with your death benefit. And you just see those things continue to go up, um, both the cash value and the death benefit. So you don't have to pay forever. One one other point too is you have options when you want to stop paying. There's really two different options in whole life. The first is you can say, hey, I want to offset this premium, meaning use my cash value growth with the interest in the dividends and just use that to fund the base premium or that minimum amount moving forward. And then we can see what does that look like? And then also you can use what's called a reduce paid up where you just tell the insurance company, hey, I'm done paying premiums. I'm never going to pay anything else. You can reduce my death benefit down to the minimum amount, and then the, the policy, again, cash value and death benefit will grow. So while I, I have heard that objection, it's very rigid. Again, I think when you're setting up the policies the way we are, there's tons of flexibility, both from how much you're putting in and then how much you're, how many years you're funding the policy as well. Yeah. And I think for us, like most of, oh, Rod, go ahead. You, you were starting. Well, yeah, based on that, I have a suggestion for people and that is in, when you're when you're doing this and you're setting these up, be very clear about your intentions and, and how long you want to be putting money into it. So for example, if I only want to ever have to put money in for four years, then I just know I'm going to be done. And and to Blake's point, we can design it to do that. Or if I want to be able to put it in for 30 years, I'm not committing to 30 years. I could still be done in three if I wanted to, but I want the ability. I want to make sure that I have that uh, structure built in to do that. That's really important on the front end to, to have that conversation. And again, we'll, we'll build it with flexibility, but the, the product, the, the specific structure of the product could change a little bit based on that conversation. So just be really clear about that. Okay, I'm moving on to our next objection, Blake. Whole life is just not a very good investment. You just don't earn a great return in it. I should, here's the thing, if I'm, if I'm doing that, there's that's money that couldn't be going into my IRAs, 401ks, or any other types of retirement or brokerage accounts. That's my issue. I agree. Oh, great. That's okay, it. great. Well, that was it. <laughs> so here's okay. why I agree. With this strategy, I think the, the key fundamental shift that has to be made, you'll hear all the time people talking about life insurance as an investment. Just like you said, it's not a good investment. I could have gotten a better rate of return. Whole life, in, in, in my perspective, in our perspective, is not an alternative investment place to be investing your money. It's an alternative savings vehicle. It's where you save your money before you go out and invest in other things that are going to create higher rates of return. So again, we have webinars breaking down why that would make sense. You know, The, the investment optimizer specifically is what I'm talking about with this. Nearly everyone that I help or we help set up policies say, okay, I can earn four or five percent or so tax free in my policy. The reason they're putting the money into the policy is not because that's the best rate of return that they can get. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the people who are able to go out and create much higher rates of return in their business, in their investing, or whatever they're doing. Those are the people who are utilizing this policy, not because. Uh, they think they're going to get a better rate of return here. It's because they can leverage that cash to go out, earn their higher rates of return. But this is why you got to go check out the webinar. You have your money growing for you in the policy and in the investment. So you're using this as a way to get an additional layer of profitability onto your, your current investing strategy. So this to me goes back to matching the product to the strategy, right? Because we're talking about whole life insurance as a place to get, you know, maybe four or 5%, which by the way, I think it will improve. Like to our point, um, if we look at historicals and we go back to the mid nineties, we're getting eight or nine or 10% or sorry, maybe late eighties, early nineties. But like the chances are that those same things are going to happen as interest rates go up. Having said that, I don't think anybody that's out there suggesting that it's likely to outperform the market as an example is accurate i think it's a i think it's a stupid argument i think that the chances are the market 
in and of itself will outperform from a return perspective mm -hmm. what I get in my whole life policy, right? So to your point, Blake, it becomes this like paradigm shift where I'm saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not investing in just the market or just the policy. I'm putting my money in the policy as a passive. Now again, but that's that's with our specific investment optimizer strategy. If yeah. I was just comparing whole life to um, a different type of investment account, I might look at that and say, oh, this is just a better place for it. The question is, can I utilize can I utilize cash value life insurance to enhance what I'm doing over here? And that's what you're that's what you were putting out there. And this is um, where we, we often talk about leverage, conservative leverage. We're by in, using the same vehicle, but inserting that leverage, we're just able to do more with those dollars, staying where they are, leverage against them, go out and create a better return in the investment optimizer. And then also say the same thing happens on the capital avalanche. We use whole life insurance as part of that strategy. Again, not because we're saying be content with that four or 5%, but we're saying by using leverage, you can turn that four or 5% into double digits. Unless, of course, it's your your alternative to bonds and you're really happy with a 5% yeah. tax-free return on a portion of your money, right? Yep. Like, again, it's about matching the purpose with the product. And once that happens, like, we can really do a lot with it. Yep. Um, okay, so I think we agree as a standalone vehicle, whole life. And the same should be said with IUL. As a standalone vehicle, I don't think either any of us believe that these are going to be like crazy, I can go and expect to get 10, 15% returns in my life insurance policy, uh, more likely it's going to be that stable asset that we then use as a tool, as a vehicle to improve the other things that we're doing, right? Like like we use the capital avalanche to improve the retirement cat dollars that we're bringing out just by adding the leverage element. Same thing on the investment optimizer, um, except that there we're improving the return on the investments we get. Okay, the next one I have on here is that it's just not very transparent. And I'm, I'm excited on this one because for years I've been trying to come up with a response to this, Blake, and I don't mm -hmm. really have one, so I'm excited to hear what you've got. Uh, but the reality is my experience tells me whole life is not very transparent in comparison to universal life. There you have it. And from my understanding, a lot of the reason that that universal life came to fruition was because whole life, you know, you, you hear the term black box, right? It is, they do not outline necessarily, hey, here's what your expenses are. Here's the death benefit. Here's the admin cost. Like nowhere in an illustration are those broken out where in the universal life chassis, you know, you can find those actually disclosed. Now, I'll, I'll actually flip it over to you, Rod, because uh, I know you did a, a video that I've used many times in terms of sharing with our clients, using the information that we have and kind of backdooring into, hey, here's what the estimated cost. Do you want to kind of walk through how you came up with that? Sure. Yeah. And this, um, it, it was kind of a long time coming because like like Christian said, we, we would get this question and it's like, well, how, how can we get as close as possible to breaking that out? And I've even really pushed insurance companies on this, been on the phone with the actuaries and saying, okay, you, you get from, from point A to point B. Here's the money, here's the person putting money in their policy. Here's the result that lands in the cash value. I just want to see a breakdown of the cost and they just can't get there. There's the mechanism is not based on costs. It based it's based on the guarantees and and the other things associated with the way that the policy is created. And so they literally do not think of it and don't build it in terms of costs. They build it in terms of some conversion between premium and what's in your cash value that doesn't include that terminology of costs. Okay. So now now what we did is we said, okay, well, we can still draw that line, even though we can't break it out and say, well, this is how much is going to the cost of insurance. And this is how much is going to whatever, pay, pay the, the agent. This is how much is going to, you know, administrative type of stuff or writers or all these different things. Um, because we know what the assumptions are in terms of how much I'm putting in this premium. We know what the illustration is showing in terms of end of year cash value. And we know what they're assuming in terms of the dividend. 
and then and sorry and also the guaranteed interest rate so knowing mm-hmm. all of those variables all we have to do is just say so i just i just back into it i say okay this is 100,000 went in and if your cash value is 75,000 i know the dividend of of, of that 75,000 the dividend was whatever like 1400 and so then i just back into okay therefore i put the 100,000 in on day 1 on day one, my cash value, my anticipated cash value is whatever, 71342 or something. And then over the course of the year, I'm earning the guaranteed interest and then ultimately the dividend. That gets me to the 75. And that way we can see at least break it out, understand mm-hmm. what it looks like between not just not just the premium in end of year cash value, but what's happening to step us up to get to that end of year cash value. But Christian, to your point, we're having to go and try to do that ourselves as opposed yeah. to the insurance companies actually providing us. So it, it, I, I actually think it's a fair criticism. It's just a fair criticism, right? Yeah, it would be nice. We would love it if whole life would be more transparent. It would make our lives a lot easier. Um, I will say this. We have the benefit of 180 years of history that helps us feel like really confident in the mechanics and what's happening and what that result is. But if you're someone that has to know all of the inner workings, Mm -hmm. you might have a difficult time with whole life insurance in its purest form because it just is more ambiguous, right? And to your point, Rod, you have to like do a little work to extract what those are. But again, I I think the key there is just understanding and learning how both of them work. And then if you're working with us, we're more than happy to give you at least a pretty good feel for how much a whole life policy is costing. And really, and actually, you know, I'm going to go off on a totally different tangent here because in my mind, it doesn't matter what they cost. It matters if they accomplish and perform what I want them to perform, right? I always tell people like, hey, if I had to pay, okay, I'll use, um, uh, drawing a blank here, uh, hedge funds as an example, right? Hedge fund oftentimes has a really high, cost structure, let's say Mm -hmm. it's two and 20, three and 30, whatever these crazy numbers are. The reality is, is people do it because they get more out of it than what they pay. The same thing applies here. Once you understand the vehicle, the mechanics, and you have a goal, you have a strategy in place, the focus should be more on less on the cost and more on what's happening to help you get to the place you want to be. Okay. Um, Rod, those are all the darts that I have to throw at whole life. Do you have any, do you guys have any final thoughts on whole life? Yeah, I want to hit on one more. If you've ever uh, been in a conversation in the whole life arena and uh, you have the different companies fighting against each other, it's been common. Like I've, I've heard this uh, criticism of uh, one company in particular has come from a few of the other companies and that is they'll say, okay, the illustration um, can't be real. Like this becomes their, be their argument because they're saying we, we, we can't figure out how you get from point A to point B. Therefore, the illustrations must not be real. So, Oh, interesting. So you're saying this is like a, an appendage of the non-transparency issue? It, it's yes. Right. It's, it's like the attack from one, from one, you know, black kettle to another black kettle saying yeah. that because of, of it's a black box, we can't, we can't see what it is. We can't draw the line. We have actuaries on our team and our actuaries can't figure out how you're getting from point A to point B in the way that you're setting it up. So therefore it must be wrong. And I mean, I'm just here to, to tell you that it's just a bunch of bunk. Like if you hear that and, and at the end of the day, Again, am I saying that what's illustrated is always going to be what it is? No, but what I do know is just from my own experience of looking at, again, this particular company that was being attacked, kept their dividend the same for many years. And so it actually gave us a window to see illustrated, real, and it lined up again. It, was it was it down to the dollars and cents? No, but was it within a dollar or two of what was illustrated five years ago? Yes. So... If, if you if you end up hearing something like that, then again, when we talked about illustrations on the IUL side, it's a very different conversation mm-hmm. because illustrations on a whole life side, again, it, is what's illustrated there going to be what my cash value is going to be in five, 10 years? No, right? 
Dividends Mark will it change. down, though, Rod. Mark it down. If you're doing it today, it's going to be better. It's not going to be worse. It's going to be better. I, yeah. So be, again, be better. because the dividend will change, and that's the thing that will make it be different down the road. But aside from that, it's just pretty much just it'll just yeah. work like clockwork. So and and that's the other thing. Like the nice thing is, is even you know a worst case scenario, and it's the guaranteed interest rate, and mm-hmm. so that you're still like guaranteed to create value. Okay. So the the bottom line I would say on whole life is that we have an incredible track record from a lot of companies that have been around for a long time since the beginning of, you know, since before the civil war through all sorts of different market crashes and things like that. And they just have maintained stability. So for us, it becomes a stable asset that we use in conjunction with investing in other things, which Rod is going to bring and Blake is going to bring us into our next topic, but I'm going to tease because I think this is a good place for us to cut off segment two. In part three, we are going to jump into the ins and outs of all things infinite banking. We're going to talk, and this is crazy. We're going to get into direct and non-direct recognition, like into the details of it. I, I can't wait. Okay, so so don't forget, hang out with us. Um, Make sure to come back for part three. Thanks for hanging out and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.